Good afternoon, everyone, on this absolutely beautiful March day. If I thought we could do PowerPoint outside, I would just announce that we are all going to go and sit on Cannon Green and listen to Professor Smith's lecture. Unfortunately, I'm not sure we can do that, uh, but we are in for a real treat this afternoon. Um, this is the third in the President's Distinguished Lecture Series this year. This is a series that was suggested to me last year by Professor Alan Kruger in the Department of Economics to fulfill what I think was really clearly um, a need on this campus for us to have opportunities to hear our own distinguished faculty. It is so often the case that we spend many uh, wonderful hours listening to faculty members from other institutions when, in fact, uh, we have within our midst friends, uh, colleagues whose work we would love to hear about. So this lecture series was really conceived to give us a chance to listen to our own very distinguished faculty. And I am particularly delighted that Stu Smith, the class of 1909 professor of physics and a fellow Canadian, has agreed, although that had nothing to do with his choice, <laughs> Uh, has agreed to suspend his sabbatical leave at Stanford at the Accelerator for at least today and talk about those, as he calls them, imperfect opposites, matter and antimatter. I've asked Stu's colleague, Professor Suzanne Staggs, an associate professor in the Department of Physics and in the Gravity Group, to give the formal introduction to this lecture. Professor Staggs received her bachelor's degree from Rice University in 1987 and her doctorate in physics from Princeton University in 1993. She has been a faculty member in the Department of Physics since 1996. Suzanne is presently teaching freshmen in Physics 106, the elements of the first unified theory of physics, electromagnetism. Her research is focusing on measuring the cosmic background radiation, which is a detectable remnant of the primeval fireball of the Big Bang. Suzanne? Well, it's my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker today, the 1909 professor of physics, Stuart Smith. Since the day I first met Stu in 1987, I've known for sure three things about him. He deserves the great respect afforded him in his field. He's an ardent and vocal champion of women physicists in our interests. And he's Canadian and proud of it. Um, after graduating from UBC, Stu left the wilds of Canada, and he resigned his membership of the National Canadian Lacrosse Champions. And that was about 40 years ago when he came to Princeton in 1961 for graduate school. He was just in time for two spectacular events in physics in 1964 and 1965. One, close to my heart, was the serendipitous discovery of the cosmic background radiation at Bell Labs <clears throat> and its immediate subsequent explanation by four Princeton cosmologists. The second was the similarly momentous discovery of CP violation by Val Fitch and Jim Cronin. The discovery of CP violation shook up and thrilled physicists. It was known for some time <clears throat> as the Princeton effect, but I'll leave explanation of the term and the significance of the effect for Stu's talk. Suffice it to say there's one more thing to know about Stu. 
He has excellent timing. In 1966, Stu moved to Germany for a fruitful postdoc, but by late 1967, he was back at Princeton as a faculty member. He participated in the hunt for new information on CP violation, but his interests diversified in the intervening years. There are other stories to be told, but let me skip ahead some 30 years to 1996. Two large collaborations had formed with the goal of measuring CP violation in the first completely new system since its discovery. One of these, Babar, I'll let Stu explain the name, was in crisis, and it was this collaboration was at risk of failure in 1996 because one of the crucial subsystems of the experiment wasn't progressing. Stu was drawn into Babar to solve the problem. As scant two years later, a group led by Stu delivered the subsystem in 1998, crisis averted. Meanwhile, Stu had just finished a term as chairman of our physics department, and he was beginning a vacation, um, I mean sabbatical, at Stanford. The bar was scheduled to turn on, meaning actually begin operating with all the systems integrated and functional in 1999. All right. To back up for a minute, the job of technical coordinator for Babar is an enormous one. Marshalling some 550 technical experts to field a $100 million instrument weighing 1,200 tons, containing more than 1,000 of the fastest available CPUs with an expected data output of a petabyte, that's a million gigabytes, that requires expertise, tact, patience, fortitude, handfuls of my Lanta, and uh, the odd bottle of Merlot. Nonetheless, when Babar's technical coordinator left, to become director of Stanford's Linear Accelerator, Stu agreed to take over for one year. During the term, Babar came online two months ahead of schedule. Excellent timing. When his term elapsed, the 500 members of the collaboration voted to make Stu spokesperson of Babar, which is a mild-sounding title that would best be translated as CEO of the largest high-energy physics experiment in existence. Some 18 months later, Babar announced its first results, the culmination of a decade of hard labor. Um, some 50 papers have been published or will be in the next year on these Babar results. So Babar evolved from deep crisis without Stuart Smith to its present success with Stu at the helm. You connect the dots. I'll end by noting that though Stu is on sabbatical at Stanford this term, he has with him an assistant professor, two postdocs, and four students from Princeton. I haven't discussed his career as an educator, but you can see that he never stops teaching. And now, Stuart Smith. Sounds a bit like John Nash's reaction to the beautiful mind. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Uh, well, let's begin. Uh, can you get these lights off, please? Okay, well, this title, is, a, is a, it was hard to figure out what a title would be, but the, the point is that uh, when first uh, came on the scene, antimatter was thought to be a, a complete mirror of, of uh, the particles, the ordinary particles that we know about, but then as time has developed, uh, and it's a good thing too, it, we'll find out that it isn't completely uh, equal and opposite. And so that, that and, and uh, the study of that has taken place in the two extremes uh, in the, in the uh, universe by looking at the early universe, trying to understand what's happening as, the, uh, as, as we evolve from the Big Bang, and then uh, in, the, in the laboratory at high energy physics accelerators. So, okay. Uh, before starting, though, I'd like to dedicate this to two of the most wonderful people I've ever known. I mean, education and, and research is transfer of 
enthusiasm and, 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 and uh, uh, insight from one generation to the next. And, and uh, I mean, me in particular in my generation, we're extremely fortunate to have these wonderful uh, mentors around. So I'd just like to do that. Okay, well, anyway, here's an outline. This is unabashedly an experimental viewpoint. Uh, we talk about particle physics and a bit about cosmology, uh, the tools of the trade, the accelerators and detectors, what are particles and antiparticles, symmetries, and then there's a standard model, which uh, is a very strong unifying uh, concept, but it, it's still... Uh, one thing about these things, not only does it unify things, it allows you to ask questions that were previously impossible even to think about. And then one of them is, what happened to all the antimatter? And then we'll talk about CP violation, this symmetry or uh, violation of it that is so crucial to this, uh, this subject. Okay, so in, in, anyway, science strives to understand the universe, and we do experiments, we look out into space, and we try to correlate them. Physics, as a, I mean, if you ask what is physics, uh, physicists really examine nature under the, we torture it, try to make the most extreme conditions you can. And, and that is go to the highest energy, go down to absolute zero, go to the very small, go to, uh, go to the end of the universe, high temperatures, low temperatures, uh, et cetera, et cetera, density and complexity. Now, we're going to focus mainly today on energy and distance scale. All right, so then here are the scales in the eyes of physics. I mean, you think it's a function of wavelength. This is a very long wavelength going to the shortest wavelength. Cosmologists, as I said, look at the origin of the universe. They study the very large. The uh, distant scales that we're more familiar with uh, are yielding really exciting science in the, in, as one thinks about the more complex rather than the simple systems or very uniform crystalline system. One goes into more complicated chaotic systems. This has taken on a life of its own. And then high-energy physics, what we do is we, we look at the, find what are the most basic building blocks of matter and the forces that create and destroy them and push them around. And so we tell you energy, matter, space, and time. It's really the, the domain of the very small. So now here's, here is a, a picture, a history of the universe. And uh, basically what we have here at the beginning is a, is a point with unimaginable uh, concentration of energy, temperature, and mass, just uh, unthinkably large. This sprays out. It's all energy at the beginning. And uh, every in, I think one thing you should think about is that every elementary, the most basic building block around, was swept up into this maelstrom uh, and, and, and uh, uh, started pushing outwards. And the... Uh, the, what happens in, as it cools is it expands. It, the gravitation is pulling it back, so it cools. And as it cools, and, and boy, it's really hot. 10 to the 32 degrees is hot. And that as it cools, eventually there, there's system, so the energy then f comes into uh, small systems first and then others, and it goes through a lot of very strange and exciting uh, what are, uh, uh, changes, and, and some of these are called phase transitions, and they result in having completely different uh, symmetries and structures on one side to the other. And as he, we're out here, this is where we are, about 15 million years, 15 billion years after the bang, and uh, so we, we start going like this, and Bram Pais had a very great idea. He called it inward bound. So what high, high energy physics is the, is the idea of pushing this way with accelerators. And we, it's about this far where we got so today. And if you notice, we're right on one of these boundaries. This is a critical boundary where uh, we think we can understand uh, another major unification of, of the 
of the forces in, in, in nature and uh, try to understand one of the most basic questions is basically what is the origin of mass? Why do particles have mass at all? And so then the beginnings of all this were uh, the universe, or as I say, like, actually I think I said a lot of this, but the one point I wanted to say is that Einstein's law here says that as energy comes out, it can transform back and forth into particles and antiparticles uh, via the energy-mass relationship. And I say all, all particles around, if they were elementary, they were there at some point. And, but it's cooled now for billions of years, and we're now there's, there's not much of this energy. It's all mass-dominated. There's big structures of stars, clusters of galaxies, etc. And space is now cooled down to 2.7 degrees above absolute zero. That's what Suzanne has been measuring. And we're all bathed in this wonderful background radiation. So we're going back. Uh, we, us astrophysicists look back by observing over all the wavelength spectrum as redshifts shift things down to longer and longer wavelengths. There's a new kind of people, astroparticle physicists. They search, search for stuff coming from outer space. They either burrow underground or they go up in satellites to try and see uh, what, what fragments there are that, that, really, that, that, are, that are produced in, in cosmic collisions, but we can't recreate them on Earth. And we people, we recreate in the laboratory as close as we can the temperatures, energies to those that are around during uh, the, in the early universe. And let's see, a Michelin guide. Uh, we, we'll jump over 2,000 years after Earth, air, fire, and water to uh, the end of the 19th century. If you recall, the Mendeleev chemistry, Mendeleev periodic table was suggesting there were, were really exciting patterns there, suggestive that there was some underlying simpler substructure. And uh, the laws of electromagnetism, as Suzanne's students, who I gather a few of whom are here know, was, was uh, very firmly established by Faraday, Maxwell, Henry, and others. How could I have forgotten Henry? And, uh, and, and it had been applied by people, Edison, Westinghouse, etc. There's also a highly the successful theory of gases based on point particles and, and uh, statistical mechanics. And also, the, towards the end of the century, the electron has actually been discovered, and Thompson proposed the plum pudding atom as a Briton, what else would you think of, combined of electrons embedded in a positively charged fluid. And people were sort of saying, well, it's all finished but the details. And uh, on the other hand, around 1900, we found that the Maxwell's equations were did solve, they passed every test, except they didn't agree with the classical relativity picture of uh, that the laws of physics should be the same in all uh, inertial frames, all frames moving uh, with res uh, constant velocity with respect to one another. X-rays were discovered, and I think it was clearly, I think it was noted that within a year, a uh, former chairman of the physics department had figured out how to use these things to image hands uh, very quickly after that. And, of course, there was radioactivity, uh, that, uh, that their fil film was unexpectedly fogged. And then Planck e e empirically explained a very big puzzle, the black body radiation, by just arbitrarily saying that energy came in quanta, or chunks. So then modern, modern physics went rampant. Uh, the talk is not going to be all this. We're, this is about the end of this kind of introduction. I hope nobody's asleep yet. In, in, Einstein had a pretty good year in 1905 and 6. He showed that light was emitted and absorbed as quanta, and he published the special theory of relativity. Particle physics really is absolutely dependent on this. It, one of the things is that the velocity of light is the same in all frames, which is very non-intuitive until you learn about it, and it's also an ultimate speed limit, and that mass is the form of energy. Now, this one is maybe not quite so well known to non-physicists, but Rutherford uh, 
came and, and blew apart this plum pudding and found that it wasn't a plum pudding at all. It was, a, it was a, like a little solar system that electrons orbited around a very small massive nucleus and that the simplest nucleus was, was one electron and a, what was at that point a fundamental particle, the hydrogen nucleus or proton. Bohr then took on this very quickly, gave a quantum description of it, and by 1927 or so, the quantum nature of matter had been firmly established. Then uh, the nucleus, there were problems with understanding the nucleus that you was thinking, well, gee, if, if, like a nucleus has, has a mass that is bigger than just the number of protons times the charge of the proton. And, and, and uh, it was, you, could, you could have said, well, maybe some of those protons had trapped electrons with them and it balanced out. You could have done that, but there were other more subtle effects that, that didn't agree with that picture. And Chadwick in 1932 solved it, finding that there was another particle called a neutron. And so then a nucleus is now made up of neutrons and protons, and this then uh, pretty solved that one. So everybody was feeling pretty good again that maybe there are only three elementary particles in nature that can explain everything, the proton, neutron, and electron. Okay, so here comes Lord Rutherford from New Zealand to the UK, and by the way, he spent a few years at McGill, uh, and that uh, was a, actually, he actually did some damn good work at McGill, too. It was worth at least $100. Okay, so anyway, what the, the, the first thing he did was he characterized this radiation that had come out from Becquerel, these samples, by passing it through a magnet. I mean, this really creative stroke of genius here. He put it through a magnet. He found that some of it was bent, others wasn't. Some was bent in the direction of positive charged particles. Some was bent as negative charged particles. They bent in opposite directions in a magnet. And some was unbent at all, just went right through. He called them alpha, beta, and gamma. And uh, they turned out later to be, this was turned out to be helium. This turned out to be the same as electrons. And this turned out to be what we call gamma rays or photons. But then he made another, the most wonderful leap, was to say, this is a particle accelerator. I can shoot these alphas at atoms, and they're energetic enough to go right through all this electric, right into this plum pudding and see what's in there. So the proof would be in the pudding. And, and so, so basically what he did then is he put electrophotographic film on this thing, and he got these three splotches. Okay, so then uh, here he comes now. This is the Rutherford Resolution, I would call it. The, you get this source, you shoot it at an atom, and what you'd expect to happen is it would just go right through this sort of pudding, slight scattering, but all of the stuff would then end up on uh, what's, got, what's called a zinc sulfide screen, and this means when, when a charged particle hit it, a flash of light. So this was the first particle accelerator, the first particle detector were graduate students looking around and counting the flashes and seeing where they were. Well, anyway, instead of seeing this, they found... To much to their amazement, they thought that, that there, was, there were some that went even backwards. And Rutherford, again, was right on the spot, and he said, uh, it's as if you had a 15-inch naval shell shot at a piece of tissue paper, and the shell came right back and hit you. And what was going on was these atoms were, were a cloud of stuff with very small pits in them. So if you didn't, most of the space is empty, and you don't go near a pit, and you just get a minor deflection. But once in a while, you hit it sort of head on, and it bounces right back, because this is just the same mass as the particle that's being projected on it. And so that was really tremendous, but for some reason, the New Zealanders thought it was only worth a cent. I mean, <laughs> but, it, but it is remarkable to see the experiment is actually on a stamp of a, of a, of a country. So I thought it was worth seeing. You can see that some of them are deflected. Once in a while, you have one that really bounces back. Okay, so then now we go on to, to we need inward bound, need more 
accelerators? Well, a TV set is, is a very good prototype of, a, of an accelerator. You heat a filament, get electrons, you put them through electric fields and, and, and guide them with magnetism, and they hit a screen and produce light. And it's a few kilovolt accelerator. Now, this is then be extended all the way through Van de Graaff's to electron microscopes. And it's the same kind of idea, but you can only get up to a few million volts or else you create a lightning storm, and, you're, and that's the end of it. So instead, uh, radio frequency accelerators uh, uh, are, are really dominant now. Uh, Lawrence and the cyclotron was, was the, the beginning of this. But the idea here is that you surf the waves. You have particles that if, this is then a positive force and a negative force. So if you have, say, a, a, a particle of one sign charge, during one phase, the force is pushing it this way. Down here, it's pushing it the opposite. So you're just going to get bunches of these particles, just like surfers coming in on the waves. And they can just keep going. If this wave travels and you tune it correctly, you can keep boosting the energy without causing sparks. And so that right now, the biggest one, they're, they're in, in 2007 at CERN, there's going to be a 7 trillion volt accelerator. And we've already had linear ones. And this is the one that where I work, a 50 billion volt linear accelerator at Stanford has been working for 30 years. Okay, this is a picture then of the kind of system that you have. This is at Stanford. These are, this is, there's a ring. This ring happens to be about two and a half kilometer, uh, miles around. And these are magnets. The, the particles are bent as they go through them. There's another ring of magnets up here. And there's an enormous amount of infrastructure needed, of course, to, to support that. Now then, particle detectors. Okay, so if you look at this thing, You'd say, uh, we're always asked, how the hell do you guys see particles? And you say, well, okay, it's not so different than this. You see this if you're looking up in the sky, and if you thought about it a while, it might have been under, a plane. So you have a plane, but you, the track was there, and when if something goes through, it disturbs the medium that it was propagating in and leaves evidence that it was there. All right, now similarly, uh, we have a thing with particle detectors. They leave ionization trails, and so that we can see in a gas-filled volume where, uh, where, where charged particles go through, it knocks electrons off the atoms. And those atoms, those, if you have the right kind of gas, those electrons will not be reabsorbed. They'll, they'll move. And if you have strong electric forces, you can bring them. And you bring them to little, very thin wires, and the electric force gets enormous as you get close to the wire, and, it, and then will cause an avalanche. It will knock more and more. The closer it gets, the more it produces. And it can produce enough that you can detect them with an electronic system. So this is one of the workhorses. This is what's called a central tracking drift Okay, so here's how you detect the sheep from the goats. You, there are various kinds of particles that we have to deal with. Forget about all the funny names. But, but light there are some of them that don't have an electric charge. Photons and neutrons don't have an electric charge. If you put them through a piece of gas, since they don't have electric charge, they don't do anything. So they go right through. And, uh, but on, on the other hand, electrons or any kind of charged particles, these other beasts in the zoo, they will knock off electrons, and we will see by, by reconstructing the hits the actual direction that they went. And then finally, you can measure how much energy they had by plowing them into something. This calorimeter is from the old terminology in, in, in thermodynamics that you heat something. Well, if, if, if these things just hit, start hitting a whole bunch of nuclei, if you choose the right kind of material, it will produce light in proportional to how much energy is lost. And so that uh, turns out photons and electrons love to do that. They, they're, they're light, and they bounce around, and they, when they bounce around, they shake off, uh, they shake off uh, photons, which causes uh, showers. Now, muon, on the other hand, is a heavy particle that does not have nuclear interactions. It just goes right through a long distance. It just, it just, 
it just sort of like Gulliver and Lilliput land. It just sort of gets uh, a little bit of, uh, it's like a resistive, uh, viscous medium. They eventually get slowed down, but they can go a long, long way. They only lose a, a, a very small amount. On the other hand, strongly interacting particles like these three, mesons, protons, and neutrons, they do uh, have interactions with other nuclei, and they, they, don't, they don't lose it as quickly as, as uh, electrons and photons, but they do, they do eventually uh, shower up in, in, a, in a manageable amount of material. Okay, so now here's, here's, here's one, what we're going to this, this is at Stanford, by the way. Uh, Wolfgang Panofsky, uh, very famous alumnus of Stanford, I mean, of, of, of Princeton, and Caltech, not Stanford. Uh, and, and his father, of course, is a very f uh, famous art historian who was at the Institute. He built Stanford Linear Accelerator to do a gigantic Rutherford experiment where here you have an electron coming in, and, and what we'll talk about is that in the modern picture, forces are transmitted by, by the, by the uh, emission and absorption of a, of a force particle. This virtual photon, like a gamma ray, comes in, hits the proton, and knocks fragments out of it. And uh, the people who did this experiment, you can see how big it is. There's a person. Uh, they went to Stockholm. For some reason, uh, this gentleman did not. I guess it's because no Princeton undergraduate has ever won a prize in physics. Okay. Anyway, here's what they found. Here's the old uh, Rutherford experiment, and it, it, it says this is a little subtle, so this is technical, so don't worry about it. If you look at the number of particles as a function of how big an angle they're scattered through, what Rutherford found is that the bigger the angle, the more disturbance, the much less, much less likely it was to happen. Until he got down hitting the pits in the in, in the in the nucleus, and then you got more than you would have expected from say like the plum pudding. Now the proton. Uh, was thought to be the elementary particle. Therefore, it should not have had any structure, should not, should not do this. But as they went down, they found that they got a lot of extra hits. And that meant there was pits in this pudding, too. And uh, what these were, it turned out, after a lot of work, uh, uh, was they were identified with, with, with uh, quarks. Here's a new substructure, then. 50s, in the 1950s and 60s, hundreds of short-lived particles were discovered at accelerators. And again, like Mendeleev, if you say if you start finding all these hundreds of things, there must be some simpler thing underneath. And so uh, the, Mr. Gelman loves whimsical names. He called them quarks. And instead of calling them kinds, he called them flavors. And so there were, the point is, this time, to all the particles that have been seen, hundreds of them could be explained in terms of three flavors. And they're called up, down, and strange. All right? And then all the stable particles, namely neutrons and protons, are made up of only two kinds of quarks. The proton has a down and two ups. Neutron is an up and two downs. Okay, this is a powerful simplifier, but the quarks hadn't been seen in the lab until, until this experiment. So this was a real revolution, again, on a, uh, again, doing the Rutherford experiment. Everybody just does the Rutherford experiment. They'll do okay if they can do it in a more extreme uh, region of, of, of matter. Okay, so now here comes antimatter. Uh, with a beautiful equation, uh, Dirac predicts antiparticles. And immediately the question was, you had, this is going back now into, into the 20s, the question then came, well, look, we've got the proton has the opposite charge as, as the electron. Maybe the proton and electron are antiparticles, first conjecture. But then shortly thereafter in cosmic rays, uh, Carl Anderson at Caltech found a particle that had the same mass as the electron and the opposite charge. And this was definitely the, the antiparticle of the electron, not the proton. And later, they were able to form 
little atoms of an electron and a positron, positronium, and they found that these two, when they got near, they annihilated back into pure energy, into gamma rays. It's interesting, this was done by Martin Deutsch, and he was the son of, the, of Helene Deutsch, who was Freud's famous patient. Uh, we've had interesting discussions with Mr. Deutsch. Okay, so, but then the question comes, does every particle have an antiparticle, or is this just a, a property of electrons? Uh, well, there weren't enough, the, the accelerators available at that time weren't energetic enough to produce antiprotons. You need energy to go into mass through E equals mc squared, so you need higher energy. The, the uh, uh, accelerator at Berkeley called the Bevatron was built for this purpose, to have enough energy to produce antiprotons and neutrons, and they found them. So that means, okay, now th then you really go to say, well, probably every particle does have an antiparticle. And this, of course, I saw in the, in the obituary for Harold Firth, the director of the, of the fusion lab, just a few weeks ago, that he had written this poem. There was only a little snippet of it, but I, Google is wonderful when you're listening to a boring talk somewhere. I hope nobody has Google on now. And you see, so we got the whole poem, and it said, Well up above the tropostrata there is a region stark and stellar, where on a streak of antimatter lived Dr. Edward Antiteller. Remote from fusion's origin, like, unlike Mr. Teller himself, he lived unguessed and unawares with all his anti-kith and kin and kept macassars on his chairs. Now, does anybody know what a macassar is? Uh, okay, Joe. Uh, it's a hair oil. No. It's an anti-anti-macassar. An, <laughs> an anti-macassar is a chair cover. So... So anyway, so he kept macassars, in other words, anti-anti-macassars. And so one morning, idling by the sea, he spied a tin of monstrous girth that bore three letters. AEC, for those who are not so old, was the Atomic Energy Commission and outstepped a visitor from Earth. Then shouting gladly o'er the sands, met two who in their alien ways were like as lentils. Their right hands clasped, and the rest was gamma rays. <laughs> okay, anyway, that it was a sad uh, occasion to find this thing again, but it, it, it certainly is appropriate. Okay, so then uh, the next step along our journey inward bound is to think about accelerators again. Uh, we, it turns out that just building bigger accelerators and smashing them into stuff gets, gets too pedestrian. Because, because, again, because of relativity, you find that when a particle's energy is much bigger than its mass rest energy, this means it's moving very close to the velocity of light, its effective mass becomes much bigger than it was when it was at rest. And so that if you looked at a collision, instead of having, say, a proton hitting a proton like this, the proton, after it's been accelerated, is going to be looking like a Mack truck. And so it, it bounces, so the poor little target just bounces off, and more and more of the energy that you paid so much to create just continues on without doing any good and creating uh, new particles or, do, or, or, or looking at st structure. This is like a fixed target accelerated this. So instead, if you could only do it, if you bring one beam coming this way, another coming that way, you could have a head-on collision, and everybody knows who drives a car, head-on collisions are, are pretty uh, dangerous. Okay, so anyway, just to put the numbers in, at CERN, there's a beam of 450 G is the European, that's billion volts, billion electron volts. And if you put, in, you, you put 450 in the beam with a fixed target thing, you only get 29 useful billion volts of, of energy. So, but on the other hand, if you do it like this, you get 900. So you can see for basically for the same amount of real estate, not much more power, it goes from 29 to 900 GV. And so clearly, as you go up, all uh, probes into the unknown are now being done at colliders for that reason. 
Okay, now here we are. Here are the biggest ones. This is basically to scale, a relative scale. This is Fermilab near Chicago. This was built in the early 70s. This ring is one kilometer in radius, six kilometers in circumference. At CERN, there has been a ring around for some time that is 27 kilometers in circumference. This one, for several years, has been producing trillion-volt beams. And this one now is, is being fitted with new magnets, new powerful magnets to produce 7 trillion volt beams, and that should be on in, in about five years. Okay, so, but the result of all this research is that there is a new substructure. All of these particles have been identified, and so what, there's some funny things about it. Here's these quarks and, it turn, and the electron, and it turns out there's a ghostly partner to the electron called a neutrino that has very weak interactions. We won't need to talk about those today. They are critical in understanding uh, the universe, of course, because they, they, are, they, are, this kind of, they are fundamental to, to uh, fusion, to these this, this stellar mechanisms, etc., etc. But we, won't we don't need to talk about them today. But then, but, so this, this then produces electron, down quark, up quark, all stable matter. But for some reason, nature has provided us with two replicas, these ones tend to be uh, about proton-like mass objects. And these ones are very heavy. This one is about 150 times, 160 times the proton mass, this top quark. This B quark, which is what we're going to focus on today, has two names, either bottom or beauty. Some, uh, some reason it bottom seems to have went out. And, uh, and then it has a heavier electron-like particle. So if you go this way, these are the uh, electron-like particles, the first three. These are the neutrinos. These are what are called the down quarks. They have charge minus one-third of an electron charge. These are the so-called up-type quarks. They have uh, a two th plus two-thirds. And so if you think about it again, a proton was two ups and a down. That's two-thirds plus two-thirds minus one-third. That amount of mathematics I think I can do in, uh, without, a, without a blackboard is, is, is one. And a neutron is minus one-third minus one-third plus two-thirds equals zero. So it works. It's, again, these kind of patterns, you know, the same kind of patterns like Menelaev or looking for prime numbers or something like that. You keep looking at the patterns until everything fits. Now then, also there are force particles. The forces that govern the, the quarks are called gluons. They're strong. They, 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 they hold the nucleus together and knock it apart. The, the photon is the one that we know so well from electromagnetism. And uh, these two, Z and W, deal only with with uh, what are called weak interactions of, 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 of radioactive decay. Uh, and, and at high energies, they, they, they uh, produce, uh, they, they modify particles. They, these are critical to what we're going to be doing. Okay, so then we have a standard model after all that pattern uh, looking. And the, the theoretical evidence of, of that, of that, that, that it is basically that, that all nature can be described by a set of forces which act on a set of fundamental constituents. These are the forces, and these are the constituents, okay? And, and uh, that's, that's pretty simple. Uh, the physical particles, though, are a little bit more complicated because the free quarks aren't observed. It turns out there's another force, which Mr. Gell-Mann and friends called color, uh, which increases a weird kind of force. It increases as the distance between the particles increases. That's exactly the way opposite to any other force we know. And so, therefore, it's cheap to cancel that color by creating particles rather than stretching this band or string. And so if you have some particle like this, instead of allowing a free charm and an anti-charm quark just to separate, it pops off a pair and pr produces two new particles. The laws and the patterns say that all particles are either of three quarks or of a quark and its anti-quark. 
That's all that matters. So there's, here's the questions. Now we can ask questions that weren't possible before. Uh, what is the origin of mass? These quarks all have different masses. If they were the fundamental ultimate constituents, you'd expect they'd all have the same mass. And they're different. So the point is maybe there's a new agent, the Higgs, or we have a friend, uh, Phil Anderson, who was very instrumental in this discovery. Uh, is, is, uh, is, is, there, is there such a mechanism? And this, to answer this question, there's the energy frontier at CERN uh, that I just showed you. And this, we'll hopefully know something about this within the next few years. And then, but the other one is, why is there no antimatter seen in the universe? People have looked all over the, uh, with every possible way. There are nice arguments so that you, if two, two structures were getting close they, and, and there were annihilations going on, we would see them through the radiation they produced. But you can sort of make a logical dedu deductive argument that there is none. And so therefore, uh, but we can produce antimatter in great quantities at accelerators. In fact, this is the central justification for the new accelerators I'm going to talk about. They're not at the energy frontier, but precision frontier, very intensive beams. And because they're intensive, we call them factories. These ones produce beams. Okay, so then uh, we'll now talk about symmetries a little bit. Uh, Mr. Wigner was the key person in this. He uh, used symmetry arguments to characterize atomic and nuclear spectra, rotational invariance, parity, and time reversal. And the, these, these were really all the patterns of which uh, levels of, atom of atoms were allowed and how they could tra make transitions from one another were all uh, uh, cataloged and characterized by doing this. But then the question is, when you get down to these subnuclear particles, do these symmetries apply? Are there new ones? And what are they? And for example, it, you might imagine that the laws of physics in a world of antimatter should be exactly the same as the laws of physics in a world where of, of matter. And, and that is certainly the, the prejudice that one would have. Okay, so then this was then asked in 1956 by two people at, at, at Columbia and, and at the Institute for Advanced Study. Is there a mirror? So you, they were, they, it was assumed, but they pointed out that it really hadn't been tested. So the question was asked, and the answer came in drastically no by, by Madame Wu at Columbia, who found that if, if, you, if you had nuclei, certain nuclei, if you, if you put, polarized, put their they, like little magnets, you lined those magnets up, and, and uh, there you found that uh, there, there was a thing that depended on and, and showed that this, there was left-handedness was preferred. That's good. I'm left-handed. Okay. But then basically it, it resulted that the one way of the, the result of all this was that electrons coming from these nuclei tend to be spinning in, 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 with a screw sense from the left hand. And then one goes on. What do you do about this? What about... Uh, the next one is what about particle-antiparticle symmetry. Is that thing preserved? And so the question is that there are certain uh, nuclei that emit positrons instead of electrons, and there's, uh, there's other particles you can produce with accelerators. And again, it was found that if you had particles, the electrons spin, spin, spun uh, left-handedly. But if you then go to uh, antiparticle world, the positron spins with a right-handed direction. And so this meant that the laws of physics for Particles are not the same as for antiparticles. But if at the same time you, uh, you change from particle to antiparticle and change from a left-handed to right-handed uh, picture, then you have a symmetry restored. And uh, this was really well received. Until uh, uh, 1964 uh, it came a real bolt from the blue that uh, uh, one of these particles... Uh, I mean, every particle that has a well-defined mass and lifetime, if this CP symmetry, this particle-antiparticle symmetry was valid, well, should be a well-defined state of that symmetry. 
And that, so here's a well-known, uh, well, to us, well-known uh, particle that uh, has one, that, that decays in such a way that it, it, that it shouldn't be allowed to do if the symmetry was, was preserved. And it only happens about one, in, one, one part in 500. And what it said is this thing is not a well-defined state of CP. So to find a particle that is not a well-defined state of CP means that, that, that this wonderful symmetry that was, was really the, 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 holy, the, 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 the holy book for seven or eight years was no longer valid. And it was really unexpected. It didn't fit into any existing picture. And immediately it says maybe there are new forces at work. Just again, and this thing has not yielded. It's been one of the most difficult problems to make progress on. And, and uh, uh, I guess there was a cartoon that Kabibo, one of the inventors of this picture, showed in 1966, and it was showed again in 1989. And basically, the caption in 1989 was the way it is today, 89, and the way it was back in 1966. And people are saying, we finally understand the weak interactions, and then there's an atomic bomb going off called CP violation. So it was bad in some ways for theoretical physics, but it was a great time for Princeton uh, that the, the, the people who invented it or discovered it were all Princeton, and uh, many of the theoretical people who tried to work on it and understand it, such as Pais and Treeman, were also in, in Princeton people. So anyway, there it is. Here they are now. You can see the people who've discovered CBP violation must be a great thing to prevent aging. I mean, this, <laughs> this, 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 this was, picture was taken just last December, and they don't look so different than they did uh, 38 years ago. Anyway, we have a great, we, I saw this thing a long time ago, a cartoon for Hank Martin. I couldn't resist drawing. When you come into Princeton, the requirement of CP violation is removed. <laughs> Okay, so the impact of this Princeton effect, which it was called for a long time, was that until last summer, as it'll turn out, this was the only absolute way to tag matter versus antimatter because in, in the following way. It turns out an, another thing was the, this particle didn't, it, 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 uh, it went slightly more often to the positron type of a, a process than its, than, its char, than, its anti, uh, than its transform. So there were not quite as many electrons produced as positrons. And in other words, in a matter part of the universe like ours, this particle decays less frequently to the electron that's bound in our atoms. This is an absolute statement. And, and, and uh, for an antimatter universe, it would have been the opposite. This could even have saved Dr. Edward Antiteller because he could have told, they could have told each other, by the way, uh, you, in, in your, if you do an experiment on K-longs, does it decay more to the electrons that are in your atom or into the antiparticle? And they would both have got this, they would have both been able to say that, uh, to determine that one was matter and one was, one of them was, that they were from the different, they shouldn't shake hands. Okay. Okay, so this then had very quickly cosmological implications in 1967. Andrei Sakharov said the universe, Big Bang, would start as energy, equal amounts of matter and antimatter. And then today, as I mentioned, there's no observable antimatter left. And so basically, the idea then would be if, if there weren't something going on, if you took these, these hands with a CP transformation as the left hand goes into a right hand and the uh, particles go into antiparticles, if you do that, everything will just cancel out and there should be nothing left except energy. And you need something. The fact that we're here means there had to be some misalignment, and this was the first clue about what that possibly could be. And Sakharov wrote down conditions for uh, producing a, 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 an imbalance between matter and antimatter in the universe, and one of them was CP violation. Okay, so then here's, then if we talk about the Big Bang, 
This is this. This is this. Uh, this beaker in the universe, 10 to the minus 35 seconds after it started. There's equal amounts of matter and antimatter there. It, it goes, and then somehow there's 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 forces that that change the amount of matter versus antimatter so that by the time you get down somewhere in this region, we don't really know how or when, but by this time, there's a slight excess of quarks over antiquarks. And then all of these other things, all the quarks and antiquarks in there eventually hit each other and annihilate and produce energy. So today, all you see is a little bit left over, and it's matter, and there's no antimatter at all. That, uh, and, and the amount is really small. I mean, if you took the number of these things at the beginning, say around this period, it's only about a part in a billion that uh, the, is the difference and what's left over, and that's us. Okay, and so this is a more comical way of looking at it. You have two armies. One has a billion soldiers. The other has a billion and one. They all just annihilate each other, and there's one left over, and that's the universe. Okay, so this... But that's as far as you can get. I mean, the estimates show that the sea, that, by the way, that part in a billion is huge. Uh, the estimates show that the kind of CP violation that Val, Fitch, and, and Cronin discovered in, in, the, in the K system failed by another yet factors of billions to account for the matter in the universe. And, 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 and so that 37 years, people have really been looking to try and sound out anything to try and get to, get to the heart of this problem. And there's been an onslaught looking under every possible rock and great increases in precision. But there's no basic understanding of its origin. Is it the standard model or is it new physics? Now, it turns out the standard model, when you've had six quarks, can incorporate CP violation in a natural way. But the problem there is the amount that it could accommodate is still nowhere near enough to account for the cosmological observations. So enter the B, a beautiful quark. So B mesons, unlike the kaons, they have many, they have hundreds of different decay modes. And if you look at it through the standard model, there seem to be very large potential uh, differences between the particle and antiparticles, like symmetries of a half. That's that's difference over some versus like one part in 500 in the K system. And this would allow direct confrontation of the standard model and to see if 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 there's if if it can uh, account for it or, or if there's something extra there. And so for that, to that end, two special purposes accelerators came online in 99, one in Stanford, one in Tsukuba. This has been a Princeton uh, sort of hobby for a long years, this CP violation. And, and not only do we have a, a group that I'm going to tell you about at Stanford, but we have a group, Dan Marlowe and his colleagues work in Japan. Uh, I guess they like the food over there better or something. I don't know. But in any case, the experiments are very difficult, but they're now feasible, and this is the central justification for these experiments and, 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 and facilities, but there's an enormous amount of other stuff that's not known about the B mesons and about charm quarks and some of these heavy leptons. So there's a very broad program of research as well as the sort of flagship quest for, for understanding of CP violation. So the, but the, here's the challenges. This is a, a euphemism for good news and bad news, that the, the standard model predicts large differences in B and anti-B mesons decaying to some special... They have to decay to some special states. They have to decay to a state that has this CP symmetry. And, uh, but the calculations from the standard model are limited only by experimental uncertainties, which are getting better all the time as better experiments get done. There's no hand-waving and theoretical model dependence, which uh, is the problem with many other parts of, of this kind of field. Sounds just great. But... Only a few in 10,000 of these bees fly in the right way to decay to these wonderful states. 
And also, the lifetime of a B meson is only one half trillionth of a second. It doesn't, go, it doesn't last very long. The K mesons, by contrast, can uh, live 50, 50 billionths of a second, and they can, at high, speed, uh, high speeds, can go many, many meters. This thing, uh, even if you have them uh, going at half the speed of light, they go a quarter of a millimeter before they decay. And so you've got it, and we've got to measure the time by seeing how far they go. So a measurement is probably 10% of that. So that means you have to measure things to about 25 microns in a big hostile accelerator environment. That's the challenge of the B factories, to get enough events and to have good enough measurements. So uh, anyway, let me jump the gun a bit. Last summer, there were discoveries. The bar, the experiment that I work on at Stanford, and Bell, notice they both start with B, uh, announced significant positive signals. Finally, we know there's a second particle exhibiting this profound effect. And as I said before, these are amenable to price, precise comparisons with the standard model. And uh, as we look ahead, there's prospects for much greater precision and more sensitive tests in the next few years. So that's an introduction to uh, the experimental program, which I'm not going to tell you about. It starts out uh, very qualitatively, and then there'll be a brief technical interlude, and I'll wake you up when that's over. Okay, so anyway, here's, here's Stanford. Uh, this is a two-mile-long linear accelerator that produces the electrons and positrons, which are then put into a ring that goes around underground into two, two rings. One goes this way. The, it turns out the positron ring goes that way. The electron ring comes this way. And because we're dealing with Bs and B bars, the experiment is called the bar. And this means we have to show a copyright on our logo all the time. But it gives you all kinds of, uh, you, can, you can get logomania, all right? So that, that uh, I'm not sure you might appreciate this one. There's a vast treasure trove of cartoons that you can, you can melt almost any possible purpose. Okay. Anyway, to get serious again, here's a, here's a drawing of the linear accelerator. Two miles comes down. Electrons go this way. Positrons, I mean, sorry, positrons go this way. Electrons go that way. I already showed you what the accelerator looks like. Here's what the detector looks like. It's, it's uh, what's called a 4pi, because it, the 4pi means the whole solid angle. It, it covers as much of the solid angle as possible. You have the electron and positron coming in. They collide. There's a very concentrated piece of energy. Since these are particle and antiparticle, they annihilate completely into energy. And that then converts into quarks, which then uh, have to come out as either quark-antiquark or three-quark uh, uh, nuclear type particles. So that, so that, but the fact that the energy is so high is we can produce particles that are not natural on Earth and they, they, they live for small amounts of time. We've got to see them before they, 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 they disintegrate. So here's what the detector actually looks like. It's, as Suzanne said, it's 1,200 tons of stuff and, and the beams go in like this and collide at the middle. There's sort of a nested set of detectors, like that thing I showed you. The first thing you do is to try not to disturb the particle very much, just let it knock a few electrons off so you can see where it went. It's in a magnet, which will bend it, so then you can measure what its momentum is. And then you plow it into successively nastier things to absorb all its energy and kill it. Okay, so that's what we do, and, and these are technical things that I won't go into. Uh, this is the collaboration. It takes a lot of people to do this work. There's 500 barbarians, and they come from nine countries, and they all have to be herded. Okay, it's, this is just call for a photograph. It's the only time you'd ever get them together. It otherwise violates the uncertainty principle. Okay. 
Anyway, we've had a lot of people at Princeton. I thought it's worthwhile just to show you the extent of the group. And the people who really are critical are the technical people who actually build the things and, and design them. The engineer, we have two engineers, Richard Fahrenholz and William Sands, several technicians. We have four, four students working now and one just graduated. There's two research staff people who are critical. This person does the, does very, in the computing. Chang'o Lu is, is a detector expert, and three of these other people have moved on. We've had two of these Robert Dickey honorific postdoctoral fellows have come. Eric Varnes has been with us for several years, and we just have a new person, John Luca Cavoto, about to join us. There's, there's Kirk McDonald was instrumental in getting Babar started. He's, but Kirk, is, if you know him, is a person, once a thing seems feasible, he wants to move on to the next impossible project. So, so therefore, he left Babar when it was, I guess it was clear it was going to work. Okay, so anyway, there's myself and a new assistant professor, Jim Olson, and let, must not forget, appropriate color green, it's brought to you by the Office of Science <laughs> University. So here, yeah, this is the main Princeton uh, contribution, the central drift chamber that does this, looks where the particles went and by their bending tracks measures as momenta. This was when we were stringing it in Vancouver and there's 28,000 wires in this thing. They're all about the, the, the thickness of a human hair. And so this, this uh, took a long time and a lot of design to get this right. It's, it's worked very well. Notice there's tigers all over it, see? And then as we put it in, this is Bill Sands putting it into the magnet and this got some of the other people a little annoyed that uh, it was a bit Princeton-centric for other people than in this room. But in, so the, the, this, this then shows the, the, the properties of a drift chamber. This is the precision with which it can measure a position. Uh, where, where, and, and it depends on how close you are to the wire. If you're right at the wire, you don't get the best information. And if you're very far away from it, you don't. But, but it's got 40 layers of wires here, so it's got lots of chances. And if, if, you, if you do a proper uh, fit to, to the best solution to the track, you find on the average that, that you can determine the position to about 150 microns. Now, that's not good enough for measuring these one and a half trillion of a second, what happens is inside, in this, inside here once it was in, there's a special detector made out of silicon, like little transistors that can measure positions to about 20 microns. And so inside of, the, inside of this thing, another very sophisticated detector that was built by Berkeley and, and, and uh, people in Italy was put in. This other thing, though, this is sort of like the contrails. As you can see, how much stuff a particle left by as, as a function of its momentum, depending on what kind of particle, it, 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 it leaves different amounts of energy behind. And by looking at that, you have a very good way of telling which kind of particle uh, went, through the, went through the apparatus. And I'll show you that in more detail in a second. And as you see, we really are, are very uh, uh, informal about this. Uh, this. This is Richard Fahrenholz. This is myself. This is the guy who's now the director of Slack. This guy's a Canadian. Canadians are somewhat shy, you see. Okay. This person looks like Osama bin Laden. Okay. 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 So this one is, this is, this was one, another detector that had its start in Princeton through Val Fitch. Had an idea that you could see how fast a particle goes by putting it through a medium. If, it, if these high energy particles go close to the velocity of light, but then if they go through, light goes slower in medium, like glass or quartz. But the particle still keeps going at the velocity of light and air. So it's going faster. When it's in the medium, it's going faster than the velocity of light. That's like when a, a speedboat goes and you get a shock wave. You get a shock wave of light. It's called Cherenkov light after it's the person who understood it first. And what happens then, it, it comes out with a well-defined angle. And so it bounces. These bars can be far four meters long. And so the light gets trapped in there just like a, 
like an optical fiber, keeps going, bouncing down, and then finally it, we allow it to come out, and it goes through a big water bath so that you can have uh, pixelated information of about that's, that's fine enough so that knowing which photomultiplier tube here it was struck, it gives you a measure of the angle that the light made in the particle. And so from the drift chamber, if you know the direction the particle went in and its momentum, you know what to expect and you can solve uh, by computers and, and thereby separate the various particle species. And it's called detection of internally reflected Cherenkov light. It's a dirk. You want to buy one? It almost put Boeing out of business because they couldn't make the, the quartz. Anyway, here's what, here's what all these phototubes look like. Uh, Hank Martin, this cartoonist, saw this thing, and he said it looked like a perfect thing for, for screening the uh, watermelon seeds from a watermelon seed spitting contest. But uh, he said that Martha Stewart was going to sell it for him. But in any case, it is a very sophisticated device. This is me, and this is the, my buddy, my, uh, Yanis Karyatakis from France, southern France, originally Greece, that he, he is the technical coordinator for BAR, bar right now. Here's a picture with a laser Taking, testing one of these quartz bars, and you can see how the light just bounces back and forth. And it's, the thing has to be so precisely ground that the angular information is maintained over a four-meter four meter path. Okay, well, those are two of the highlights of the detector. So here's what you get, a beautiful event. And you can see that, that here's the, this is our drift chamber. It, 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 uh, by the, by, uh, and, and by what happens in this dirk, we can put all this information together to say that this was a pi meson, this was a muon, this was a k meson, and so on. And by measuring all the energies and directions of these things, we can put it all back together and understand what it came from. And so if you look right at the center of this thing with the silicon, you can even see finer structure. And this is what a quarter millimeter looks like. If you look very closely and you have good eyes, you can see that there's an offset between some of those particles come from one point, some come from a slightly displaced point, and those are the products of the decaying B meson. So all of this then is got, it's a very sophisticated analysis to, to, to unsort all this thing. This is one of these magic states of CP invariance. And so what we look then is to see if we look how what is the time structure when B mesons go to this magic state versus anti B mesons? Any difference in the in the form of these curves would be evidence of CP violation. And here's the, here's then how the measurement is done: the positrons and electrons come in. They have different energies, so that that the resulting junk is drifting in the lab and not just sitting still. It's the only way you can get them to move far enough to to measure them. So the Bs and the B bars head off. They decay. One of them, de and, and to get enough events, remember only a few in 10,000 do this, you want to get the minimal information to make sure you understood what was going on. And so in, in one case, we, we uh, look and we can find that we can completely find all, everything about this and say that this B actually went into this magic state, J psi K short. That says we have a, a useful event. Now the other one, if you wanted to understand everything about it, you'd end up with no uh, sample of zero. So instead, you look for partial information. And it turns out with, through the decay chain, there are particles like a high-energy electron or a, or a kaon, the sign of which tells you whether it was a B or a B bar. Now, one thing I didn't tell you is that we, we tune it so that the properties when they collide are that when you produce you have to produce a particle-antiparticle pair because energy goes into particle-antiparticle pair. But these are correlated. And, and this, for, tech, for, uh, for aficionados, this is called the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen uh, uh, situation. So that when 
when we, when we actually detect at some time that, say, one of these particles decayed in a way that we could set, tag whether it was a B or an anti-B, that means at that time the other particle had to be the opposite. But then uh, as you go back in time, it turns out these particles mix with each other. This is getting technical. But that all the information is in, that we need is in this difference of position. So we say this one decayed such that it was a well-known flavor. It was either a B or a B bar. Then if we measure the time at which the other one decayed into a CP magic state, a well-defined state of CP, then uh, we, can do, we can plot the, the frequency of, of, of these distances for antiparticles and for particles and see if they are the same. And so we do that. And uh, the first thing is just to show you that we can reconstruct these things very well. These are all the magic states. There's several of them. And this is plotting, after you've done all this putting, you know, re reconstruction and, and Sherlock Holmesing to figure out uh, what they came from, you find that they all come beautifully to the mass of the, of the B meson. They're, they're, there's no background, really. Uh, and, and so, but, but just look how, how inefficient we are. We produce 60 million of these pairs. And of them, only 1,850 were useful. So that's 2,000 out of 60 million. It's not a very good yield, but it's the best you can do, and it's enough. Because now here's what you would expect, then. These things decay randomly like radioactivity, so they have exponential light decays. But there's some interference going on, so they're not exactly exponential, and that, in fact, is the signal we're looking for. So you can see that, that uh, if you had a perfect detector, the, if the bees are decaying, they would have a distribution that was skewed maybe this way, and the other one's opposite. This is what the standard model would say should probably happen. Now, when you put in the fact that the detector isn't perfect, you get a curve that looks more like this. It's smoothed out. For those of you who really want to know what's going on, that's the expression. And uh, actually, the magnitude of the CP violation is in this, this term, sine 2 beta. Just remember that. Nothing else. Okay, so now then if we go on, there's the result after all this. And I think you can see that it's very clear that there is a difference between the blue and the red. I don't think you need to have a sophisticated statistical fitting uh, um, workshop to figure out that there really is a naked eye difference. And in fact, if you take the difference of these things, you take blue minus red over blue plus red and plot it, uh, sorry, yeah, yeah blue, blue minus red and plot it as a function of this time. Notice the times here. These are in what are called picoseconds or trillionths of a second. So we're measuring the time spectrum very well to well within a trillionth of a second by measuring the distances that these particles go. And it has this characteristic shape that it's expected to have, and the magnitude of this, of this asymmetry is 0.75, and the, this result is just released by Babar two days ago, and the, it's now getting to be quite a precise result. Well, a year, a, a less, Exactly a year ago, this was not, there, there was not definitive evidence one way or the other. But since then, it's become very precise. And so then, so it's come from a hint to precision in three years, less than three years. Before the B factories, this was it. It was, you know, two standard deviation. There, those things happen all the time. There are fluctuations except in certain uh, low, low repute journals. Uh, now, Babar's... But Barr and Bell last summer announced results that were separately and certainly combined enough to declare that CP violation had been observed. And, uh, and, and our new result, as you can see, is, is, is quite significantly better. Remember, to, to get this thing to go down, it really goes like the square root of the number of 
of, uh, of events that you're looking at. So to get better than a square root of two, that means we've got more than twice the statistical power in, in a very short in six months. And so now the world average for these things before the B factories, it was simply this one. Which, and, but what's amusing is after July last year, <laughs> the central value <laughs> didn't change at all, but then it became a measurement, not due to these characters, but they said, of course, they were right. But uh, uh, they probably also got cancer from uh, um, electromagnetic uh, transmission lines. Uh, okay, but then t yesterday, with re putting this one in, an unofficial average is now the thing is 0.8 plus or minus 0.08, so it's now become a 10% number, and that, that is now getting to be really quite uh, significant. In fact, this is a reasonably technical side. Forget about the left side, I mean the right side. But here, now that we're getting enough data, you can look at each individual magic state and see if, it all, if they all give the same answer, because... They go through different intermediate processes, and some of them could well be different uh, to, to, uh, in, in, a, in a small fraction of the standard model result. And so what we're, we're, we're look, look, let's face it. We're, as Dan said, the standard model wins again. We're not happy that the standard model, as I'll show you, predicted a number that's very consistent with this, this measurement. But the good news is we're, we're getting so much data that we'll soon be able to look at these things in some fine detail. And many discoveries in physics have come from small discrepancies. The big worry was that you're never going to get enough data to be able to do these small, precise experiments. But I think we're going to get there. Okay, so then this one then is really hard. Instead of doing that psi k short that happens several parts in 10,000, we now do this one, which happens only about a part in a million. And these are brand new results. They haven't, there's a seminar going on concurrently at Slack announcing them that uh, this one hardly ever happens. And because of that, there's large backgrounds. And you have to separate the particle species. This one you really didn't. They, 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 the topology did it all for you. But these things look just like backgrounds unless you really know whether you have a K meson and a pi meson. And this famous ring of this Dirk, again, has really paid off and, and has, has, has really, really slaughtered the backgrounds. And so here we have bees and anti-bees, and you subtract them like we did before. But this time, it's a very small, insignificant effect. And, but it is still, you remember this, a sine function can go for between plus one and minus one. So this is showing, A, that the, the, to get this kind of very precise measurement is possible, and this, this value now is already having some, albeit weak, but some impact on uh, uh, comparing with the standard model. Let me just show you a bit about that. So from the sign to, from, from the, the, the golden modes, the one that was announced last summer and is now precise, when you put it all into, the, into, the, into consider what else is going on in the world, all the other physics of all kinds for 40 years has produced these very vague, uh, big bands of one kind or another. If you, can, if you put them all together, there's a whole theoretical or no, phenomenological industry of, of grinding all these things out, producing this sort of blob, which says that from other measurements in CP violation itself, Put the standard model would predict that this quantity we measured should lie on sort of within that blob. There's all kinds of Talmudic arguments about how big that blob is, but uh, I think you can see that this goes right through it like a laser pointer. So that is good news and bad news. It really says standard model knows what's going on. And, uh, and then if we do the same thing for this fledgling uh, dis uh, work on the B to pi pi, these things that happen one in a million, 
you get a thing like this. Now, when you've really measured something, you get a number. Like Val Fitch got a number. It happens one part in 500. But when you don't measure something, there's so much creativity possible. Beautiful curves, wonderful patterns and everything like that. And so that number that I showed you before when you plug it in leads to all this beautiful stuff. And again, it goes through the blob. And, uh, but, it, but clearly, it, it could, it, it's not at the same level of precision as this one. But the fact that we're there at all means in the next few years, we're hoping to be able to do a pretty good job. And so then, what does all this mean? I think it means that, that clearly this, this effect, this, this, this profound cryptic effect, as Cronin called it, has been observed in the B system as well as the K, and it's what's seen so far is consistent with the standard model. This almost certainly means that the thing that Fitch and Cronin saw was also produced by standard model effects. Therefore, the, cosmo the CP violation we need to explain why we're here, why the, the antimatter disappeared, is still a mystery. It's hiding out somewhere. It may, be in this, it may be lurking at slightly higher energies. That's what our faith is. That's what we hope, that the next set of accelerators will produce Higgs as perhaps supersymmetric particles or other things. And we will then we're also hoping is that we will see small effects, deviations from the standard model, that won't say which one of this it is probably, but will say that there's something within reach that has been one of the characteristic ways of making progress in revolutions in physics. Or recently neutrinos have been found to have much more uh, complex uh, properties than we originally thought. They were originally thought to be massless. Now there are good indications from Japanese experiments that the, that the neutrinos have a very small but non-zero mass, which means they may be able to play a role in this. Or there's just something completely unknown that we don't understand. I think one thing is really clear is the B factories will have an awful lot more to say about this in the next few years. So let me just finish up with my next door neighbor who had a wonderful quote that the promise of future science, and, and I think that's everybody's science, is to furnish a unifying goal to mankind rather than merely the means to an easy life to provide some of what the human soul needs in addition to bread alone. So thank you very much. Sure, if there's some questions. And I can see if I can't answer them, they're going to get dumped into the audience pretty fast. Question. Yes. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't really hear the question. Good. Oh, okay, sure. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, good question. But what happens if, if are, are you in, in physics? Are you taking a physics course? I did that. Okay, good. Then, then, you, then you have no excuse not for understanding. Is, is that, is, is, you know, it takes a force to change the momentum or the velocity of a particle. So then if it comes through uh, a medium, as we saw from Rutherford's experiment, the, it, it's very unlikely that it's going to have a violent collision with an individual uh, nucleus, and so it's just going through and loses energy very slowly. In fact, there's a well you, you can your measurements show that it's, a, it's it's very slow, and 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 that means that going through a couple of centimeters of quartz, it's it's going to lose only a very negligible fraction of its energy or momentum if it's a high energy particle, and 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 since the velocity of the particle is related to its energy, it's not going to significantly slow down at all. It, 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 it's 
It's just put in, you just, it's, it's, it's a numerical argument. Like to ask all of you to join me in once again thank you. <laughs>